This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. Owning animals is a, is a privilege. It's not a right that we have. And if we have animals and we benefit from having them, we are obligated to provide for them, including um, adequate shelter and food and water and, and health care for all times. And, and it's disturbing to me when people get animals and they just take from them. They don't give back. And they have to realize we are obligated to be good and, and caring stewards of animals and because it's just the right thing to do. That's Susan Kerr, who's back on the show to talk about assembling a livestock herd. But first, Herman Bruns on building an affordable and effective mobile hoop house design and why he did it. All right, time for the show. Hey folks, it's Jordan. All right, I'm going to get right to it. Our first guest today is returning to the show. It's Herman Bruns of Wild Flight Farm here in the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. A few years ago, Herman built a mobile walk-in tunnel that has really worked for him. Uh, it's cost-effective and, to his mind, uh, simpler than some of the other designs out there. So Herman came on to talk about that. With this interview, it's important to understand that uh, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the design itself because Herman gave me uh, some some great plans and uh, photos of his design that you can find as a separate post at the ruminant.ca. So there will be a link from the show notes for this episode to this individual post on Herman's mobile hoop post design. Instead, he's talking about why he wanted a mobile hoop host in the first place and then a few, uh, a few of the selling points of his design. So I hope you enjoy that. And after that, you're going to hear from Susan Kerr and you'll have an intro just before that. Here you go. Hello, my name is Herman Brenz and uh, my wife and I run uh, a 25-acre uh, market garden and we've been doing it for the last 23 years in the North Okanagan. It's called Wild Flight Farm. So we have uh, two main ways of marketing our produce. Um, we have two farmers markets that we do, one in Salmon Arm and one in Revelstoke. And we also uh, supply quite a, quite a lot of vegetables to a home box delivery program in Kelowna called Urban Harvest. Herman Bruns, thanks so much for coming back on the Ruminant Podcast. Oh, no worries. Herman, we're going to talk about uh, movable greenhouses today, and I'm wondering if you could tell me why you decided to to uh, to, to play around with movable uh, greenhouse tunnels. One of the things I realized is if you start growing things like tomatoes uh, in a greenhouse, or uh, you know, uh, there these ones are unheated greenhouses, so they're basically high tunnels that are movable. Uh, the ones that we built. So we we've been we've been wanting to grow tomatoes and other warm weather crops in these houses. Uh, but the problem is that then you can only grow that crop in the house. That's one crop. But if you could move the house, you can turn that one crop into three crops. And so suddenly the value of investing in a in a high tunnel triples. So the way I do it is um, we start off with an early spring crops like uh, lettuce, uh, r- you know, radishes, all kinds of things, everything grown in the ground in our, in our high tunnel. And then I, when I go to plant the tomatoes, which will be um, usually around uh, end of April, early May, we drag the house off those crops, which actually don't need the protection anymore anyhow uh, because they're 
fully grown and to some extent we're already harvesting them. Um, and I can uh, plant my tomatoes. And so we plant our tomatoes in the new location and uh, then the, throughout the whole summer the uh, tomatoes are growing there. And then in the fall what we do is we're in the space where we had our spring crops. We now plant fall versions of the same things like uh, you know, just to use it as season extension, you know, spinach, radishes, lettuces, all kinds of different things like that. And then once the tomatoes are done, so that would be sort of, I'd be probably planting those uh, in August or September. And then once the, uh, the uh, tomatoes are done in middle of October, we move the house back onto those crops just in time for winter so that we can protect them for the late fall and, you know, early winter rains and, and uh, colder weather. So that way you can actually, out of the same structure, you suddenly get three crops instead of just one. And so that was the, the, uh, the real driving force. At the time, we were just getting our farm started and, you know, spending $5,000 or, or so on a, on a high tunnel was a fair investment. And uh, we wanted to be able to get the most bang for our buck by doing that. So that's why we did that. In the meantime, we built a whole bunch more, and um, most of which are actually not movable. But we only remove the ones where we want to, because you don't really need a movable house if all you're growing is if all you're doing is season extension. If you're just growing spring crops and fall crops, they don't conflict. So you can easily have the same house, use the same house in the same location. But it's when you want to insert that third crop, that summer tomatoes, long English cucumbers, peppers in our case, all grow much better inside uh, a, a, a greenhouse or a high tunnel than than outside. And, and Herman, I imagine there's there's probably one or two or three other benefits. I think you mentioned in, in an article you wrote about your movable greenhouses that uh, it's easier to deal with couch grass when you're moving... Um, the, the hoop house. The, I assume you mean the couch grass that kind of creeps in right along the edges where it can be hard to get at it. Of course, by moving the house, you can easily get at any of those weeds because you can just till all the soil uh, right along the edges, which you usually can't get at uh, with any kind of equipment. So you have to hand dig it out if it's a pro- you know if you're having it come in. Uh, in the meantime, we've developed a, a strategy for preventing that uh, weed from coming into our stationary houses too by just um, installing flashing along the edge, along the outside edge uh, of the greenhouse uh, when we build it. And, and then I, I also, I just, I, I'm only assuming, I don't really know, but I, 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 you know, I feel like I've read that, that, you know, by when you're able to move your hoop house, you're going to perhaps slightly reduce the, the pest and disease pressure that can build up uh, on a piece of ground that never gets rain and that sort of thing. Would you would you, do you do you see any benefit to that? Yeah, I I mean those are I think those are sort of uh, definitely there. It's it's a I think it's theoretically there. I I don't I can't say that I've actually noticed it, uh, but I think it just sort of makes sense that if you can expose, um, you know, and uh, a piece of ground that is inside a house all the time, if you can expose it to rains and to weather, that it that it would be beneficial but um i can't say that i've actually really noticed a striking difference in that regard 
it does give you that opportunity, that, and you could use a green manure, and and there's more crop rotation, a little bit more crop rotation, that kind of thing. Sure. Now, Herman, I should say at this point, you've shared uh, a few photos and some some diagrams uh, that will be up at the Ruminant. Uh, will be posted uh, at the same time this this interview goes live. Um, so people can actually, we're not going to talk a lot about the the technical aspects of your structure, but I do want to say, I mean, the, the idea of a movable greenhouse isn't a novel concept, but what the way you approached it was just to try and find a really uh, cost-effective and easy way to build one. And your design, it seems like you achieved that. You, you, you did it fairly cheaply compared to some of the other models out there. And it seems yeah, like it wasn't that, that was, difficult to build. Yeah, like that was one of the, like I said, the, the original idea behind putting up a house a structure like this was to save us money. And I, I looked at some of the designs uh, at the time, you know, I had Elliot Coleman's uh, book and um, I just thought it was too complicated looking from my, you know, for my liking. And I just thought, okay, well, maybe we can come up with a simpler, cheaper option. You can just drag the house from side, from, from end to end. So, um, that's that's just easier than having uh sort of rollers or wheels or other ways of doing it i just find i you know i go and borrow a tractor uh from my neighbor and i use my tractor on one side and the other tractor on the other side and we just drag it it becomes like a ski that it just sort of drags on and it's really simple and it doesn't leave any kind of posts or anything in the way in the in the in the previous location um, which was again, like I said, uh, or we were talking about earlier, that it enables you then to get in there and get away, get rid of any quack grass or perennial weeds that are um, giving you problems. And uh, those are fairly large structures, twenty by a hundred, thirty by a hundred. So you, yeah. you know, one can build a large hoop house on this on your model. Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't take. Uh, it, it works really well. It, um, it's amazing. They they just they they're very. We've had them now for, I think some of them for more than 15 years. And, that's, you know, we move them twice a year. And uh, it goes quite quick, actually. We we can move a house in uh, about uh, one person uh, can do it in two hours. And it, well, you'll just need help to actually do the dragging. You'll need a second person just to, to drive the second tractor. Um, but other than that, it's just one person. Um, each side of the house, uh, so that you, you, one thing you do have to, of course, do is you can't just put them on these angle irons without sort of fastening them to the ground. Because if you do get any amount of wind, those the, the house can take off on you, <laughs> and it's happened to to people before. And so, um, in our area, we don't get a lot of wind, but we um, so we can get away with. Um, I, I just built little angle iron. Uh, sorry, out of uh, out of rebar, I I bent pins that have a little hook in the top, and I just uh, pin it to the ground with with uh, with these uh, uh, rebar pieces. They're about two and a half feet long, and I just pound them into the ground, and and uh, they're they're attached to the uh, the angle iron skid which you can you'll you'll need to see it in a picture to be able to see how it works but in any case it's really simple and we put one pin every 10 feet or so and uh, those you know when you go to move them you just have to pull up your 10 pins on either side and drag the house over and put the 10 pins back in 
wow. and then you're good. And wow. so it goes quite quick. All right. Well, people, uh, listeners can can see some fairly detailed diagrams and some photos at theruminant.ca. If you're hearing this, it means those photos are, are up on the website, so you can go check it out. And uh, Herman Bruns, thank you so much again for coming on. I hope we can have you again on in future. Okay, no worries. Thanks, Jordan. My name is Susan Kerr. I'm the Washington State University Northwest Regional Livestock and Dairy Extension Specialist. I'm a veterinarian and also have a doctorate in education. I'm located at the Mount Vernon Research Center, which is in Skagit County, Washington. My email address is k-e-r-r-s at wsu.edu. So my guest today on the Ruminant Podcast is returning to the podcast. This is Susan Kerr, Northwest Regional Livestock and Dairy Extension Specialist at Washington State University. Susan Kerr, thanks a lot for coming back on the podcast. I'm happy to. Susan, today you suggested we talk about assembling a herd. So why don't we start with the basics? What do you mean when you, when you say assembling a herd? That means uh, getting started in the livestock business. If you don't have any animals at all, how do you go about assembling a herd or a flock? Let's say I approach you and, and I'm really eager to get started in some in some livestock production and, and I, I don't have much of a clue. Where would you start with me? I always recommend people start with sitting down with a paper and pencil and make all their mistakes on pencil. You wanna, if you're going to kill any animals, you want it to be theoretical. Many, many people um, start off uh, with lack of information and they make some big mistakes and they could have avoided those if they just sat down and did some planning at the beginning. It'll just save so much time and money and headaches and, and maybe prevent some divorces too. Because sometimes uh, having livestock is one member of the family's dream and it's not everybody's dream and it's a lot of work and everybody has to pitch in or it's just not going to work. So much. Okay, so during that planning stage, what, what, do, what, what considerations need to be, uh, uh, well, what needs to be considered? Excellent question. The first thing is, why are we getting animals? Why are you interested? What's your reason for having them? If you want to make a living with them, your goals are going to, that's a lot different than just having them there for fun or to eat grass or for your family's own meat per, or, or fiber production. So you've got to agree on your goals. And also then, if you um, want to make money with them, you've got to determine if there's a market for the product you're going to produce. Many times people um, do everything. They get the animals, they start raising them, and then when the animals are mature or the fiber's ready, they say, great, now we're going to sell it. And there's no market. There's no one to buy what they've raised. And then so that, then you've not only not made money, you've lost money. An another thing to figure out is what resources do you have for this enterprise? How much time do you have? How much land, fences, building, all of that? You've got to figure that out. Are you going to have to hire labor or can you do it all yourself? Again, we're still on paper. We haven't purchased a single animal yet. But Susan, that almost sounds like so far what you've mentioned. The question seems to be doing that planning to determine if one should have livestock at all. Am I right about that? I mean, I assume after that, then you get into what species and what breeds. You are absolutely right because um, we, we all have the well, most, some of us, anyways, have the ability to have livestock, but not all of us should. We, we often think of just the benefits of having livestock. We don't think about the responsibilities. 
And, I, and I've got to say that an awful lot of people that get started with LifeSack on a small scale end up not being involved with them even just a year later. They were just poorly suited. Either they weren't familiar with the amount of time that's involved or they wanted a more flexible lifestyle, lifestyle than we're allowed to have if we care for livestock well. Just the, They and the livestock were poorly suited. And, and I really hope people, like I say, make those mistakes on paper or just sitting around talking as a family. I'd say the, the biggest mistake is people probably who don't have enough land to have uh, the type of animals or the amount of animals they need or want. Especially with sheep and goats, it's very easy to get way too many animals on too little acreages. And then, those, and then you enter into the problems of heavy parasitism and, and other issues um, that are all a mistake from human mismanagement. And, and it's just very important for especially new people to have a good understanding of what's required by both uh, financial resources and time involved and the land involved. If you get the wrong animals and too many of them in the wrong place, we're really going to hurt the environment. We're, we're going to hurt the family because of the stress, and we're going to hit people's um, wallets as well. And we want to keep um, people producing healthy animals and healthy food products uh, successfully on a small scale for their family or their, their community and not have them have a horrible experience where animal health is affected and people have lost a lot of money. So it's the, the right animals in the right place at the right time. And sadly, I've got to say, for a lot of us, it's not the right time or we're not in the right place and we can just wait or we can have it be a dream or, like I say, find someone and, and go help out there once in a while. Right. Uh, and and uh, then also you can go to shows and sales and other livestock events to just uh, talk to people about livestock and the different breeds and species bearing in mind that anyone who's a breeder is, is going to want to promote whatever breed and species they're selling. Okay, so, but are there certain species that you would recommend the real newbies start with? I mean, are there certain species that are going to have newbies less likely to abandon the project a year in? <laughs> um, I think maybe chickens, and I don't really usually think of them as livestock, but that's a really good area to start with. Um, uh, there's a demand for eggs and for poultry all the time. They're, they're not physically hard to raise, and people can get used to the chores and, and animal caretaking on that small scale. And then they can always add other things as well. And I don't feel comfortable recommending a certain species for people because if I recommend cattle and you've got half an acre, forget that. So uh, it, it really depends on, on resources and so on. And Susan, earlier you alluded to, you know, the folks who may not be suited to livestock. Let's assume, though, now we're going to talk about the people who are suited. They've got the right infrastructure. They've got the right skills and mindset. What, what do those people have to think about when they're assembling a herd? After you've decided, yep, we're going to go ahead and do this, um, then it's time to get animals. And it really is worth your while to spend a lot of time uh, looking for and purchasing maybe a few high-quality, healthy animals. Instead of a whole lot of animals at once, focus on high-quality, healthy, we call them foundation stock, your first animals. 
And how do you find these high-quality animals? I, I recommend uh, asking a lot of people. Ask your local veterinarians where they would purchase livestock from. Uh, just ask around. Check your uh, 4-H people and county extension folks and say, um, what's a good source of, of whatever species you're interested in, in locally? Uh, you certainly can go on the Internet and find lots of people willing to sell and sell cheaply. And, and certainly you can go to the auction yard, but when you go to the livestock auction yard, you have no idea why the animal is there. Um, generally, that's how people sell their problem animals. So you could be buying something that can't get pregnant or it's got a really bad attitude or it has chronic mastitis, and that is just the worst place to buy an animal and bring it home to have it as a breeding animal. Yeah, I guess you just, in this case, you really you get what you pay for, so you're, it's worth spending a little more money. And sadly, when you go to an auction yard, you get a lot more than you pay for because you, whenever you bring an animal home, you bring home its viruses and bacteria and, and um, parasites. And when you go to an auction yard, you can be bringing home some really, really difficult problems to fix. So um, the only animals I recommend bringing home from auction yards are one you're going to eat that day. <laughs> and, and that's not the best source of them either. Okay. So, uh, do you see many examples of people choosing, you know, running into trouble because they've, they've chosen the right species but the wrong breed for, for their farm or for their skill set? Uh, absolutely. Get, uh, mostly it's people that have done all their research on the Internet, and they tend to then go to um, breed associations. And as I mentioned, every breed association wants to promote its breed, and some breeds are poorly suited for some situations. Uh, such as, uh, I'm just um, making an example, um, say you, are, you buy a Suffolk ram from uh, a purebred breeder and it's uh, grain-fed and, and a farm-based animal, grew really fast. That animal, they, th that strain of that breed tends to do poorly on range when they've got to um, work, travel a lot to eat and they've got to travel a lot to find the ewes to breed. They often don't hold up well at all. It's very important to make sure you get uh, the right, even the right line of the breed you want. Um, I, I feel sometimes um, novices can be taken advantage of, so they, you just have to um, ask a lot of people, find hopefully a reputable mentor, an experienced person that can guide you through the process and have them go along with you to help look at animals and ask questions. Okay, Susan. What other considerations should uh, should be should be in mind when assembling the herd? Well, if you found a, a reputable source, then um, you really need to address the health of the animals you're purchasing. It's really a good idea to bring in a veterinarian and have them do a pre-purchase examination. If you're purchasing some valuable animals you want to keep for a long time, the, the veterinarian will do a, a physical exam and also blood work. And um, that for each species, there are several diseases that we're concerned about, and we don't want to bring those diseases home. And a, a reputable breeder will not mind that you do these tests. They might have done them already, and you're going to repeat them. They won't mind you're looking at their records and answering all your questions. A, a reputable breeder really cares about where their animals are going, and they should be really happy that you care that much, too. Uh, and it's not only the lab tests on the animals you're purchasing that are important. It's the, the health status of the whole herd of origin is very important as well. We have some long-term diseases that take a long time to 
manifest themselves. So you could easily purchase an animal that's negative now, but if it came from a positive herd, it could convert to being positive later. And it's been a typhoid Mary all those years in your herd, uh, spreading the disease to others. So um, if you're if you're interested in long-term healthy animals, uh, make sure you're buying animals that have had a, a physical exam and, and appear healthy and, and also appear to have uh, negative test results. Getting an animal tested, how much does that cost in your area if, if, if one wants to get some tests done before making a purchase? Oh, boy. Uh, well, if you want to have the veterinarian come out and examine your animal, um, you can, it's a, it'd be a basic farm call and then an exam time. And you could go even as in-depth as having x-rays done. Uh, and, and so that's, we're talking about several hundred dollars. Uh, I think probably you could start with a basis of maybe a hundred dollars to several hundred, depending on uh, how in-depth you want to go. Uh, as far as the blood work goes or the other testing, um, that again could probably be like about $20 to maybe a hundred dollars. Okay, so so but that uh, that's really interesting to me. So we're we're just talking about getting an animal examined, and we could be talking about a few hundred dollars or even a bit more. Um, but I guess that speaks mm-hmm. to your belief in the importance of of buying uh, the right animal in terms of health and and um, you know uh, you know other other characteristics. Right, because um, there's I'll give an example of a few diseases. There's something called Yoni's disease, which is a contagious bacterial disease of all ruminants and if you bring that home um, it's going to be on your property and perpetuated in your animals for years and you if if you want to get rid of it it's going to cost you thousands of dollars to get rid of it instead of the hundred dollars to, to identify it in the first place okay Susan so what about what what, what do we need to be thinking about in terms of um, in terms of facility facilities when when we're assembling a herd very good question. Um, it just makes sense to have the facilities ready before you purchase your first animal. Like people that are going to have a baby, they spend a lot of time getting that nursery ready. It's, uh, get it ready before the baby comes because you won't have time after. Very important to have facilities that are safe. Go through and make sure they don't have trash and debris and broken glass and nails and lead batteries or toxins around and and if animals can get into trouble they will so go through and have a facility that's safe and you don't need a solid barn a a three-sided shed is great depending on for some systems anyways um, and just have protection from the um, prevailing winds and the precipitation and three-sided sheds leave a lot of good ventilation and that's really important you don't want to have a real tight barn because um, animals can um, spend a lot of time in there and, and uh, a lot of condensation happens and then pneumonia. So just have a safe, well-ventilated barn and, and walk your pastures and make sure there aren't toxic plants out there or dangerous holes. Make sure the fences are in good repair and, and remove any type of risks that are out in the pasture. And uh, I really encourage people to learn about poisonous plants. There's just a whole lot of them and you need to either fence them away or, or keep animals from having contact with them. And also, um, it's important to figure out um, how much storage space you're going to need for hay or grain or other supplements you're going to need for your animals and make sure you have clean, dry storage that can be protected from, from vermin and, and keep that feed safe.
And are there any particularly pernicious and fairly common poisonous plants that a lot of people uh, aren't aware of when they're when they're you know when in terms of when they first get started in livestock production? Well, just a, yeah, just a couple that come to mind are the nightshade family, um, wilted um, branches and leaves from the prunus family. That's cherries and and so on. Um, the hemlocks, both poisonous poison hemlock and water hemlock. Those those are just a few that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there they, are a lot. Yeah, important then to, to do that research. That's a that's a really good point. Um, okay, yep. so we've taken care of facilities. We've done our due diligence in, in just purchasing the right stock. What about once we once we have at least the the, the origins of a herd? What about managing um, that that herd? You know, once we've made our purchases. Right. Uh, well, and and one thing I forgot to mention for the housing, we want to make sure we've got plenty of space for all the animals, for them to, all to be able to eat at the same time. You've got lots of clean water for them and space for them all to move and, and also be bedded down and relaxed so that none are left outside in the elements, including the, the hot sun or the, or the wind and rain. Um, plenty of space for all. And then... Um, if you are bringing new animals into a farm where you've already got animals, it's very important to keep these new animals isolated from the home herd. Uh, if you can do three months, that's great. We, we want them to be isolated and separate by at least 30 feet, and that's downstream and downwind from the home herd. That way, if the new animals we brought in, despite our uh, efforts to detect disease, if they break with something, uh, they will be significantly far enough away from the home animals to not endanger them. And if you're purchasing new animals, you always do the chores on the home animals first and, and then the um, new animals second. And you wear um, change clothing after you've handled and dealt with the, the second animal. And does that also, would you say that also applies to, to poultry as well? You bet. Anytime you're adding new animals, mixing new animals at all very important and you shouldn't uh, share feed um, equipment or or any type of equipment with these two groups they should be separate people might think that this is overkill but all you need to do is have one animal come in with a disease and spread it to your others and have your home animals that you're already attached to start dying and you'll understand the need for this biosecurity of, of quarantine and isolation. Have you seen it? Have you seen instances where, where the new, the new animals uh, contaminate the, the origin herd and create big problems for a farmer? Absolutely. A real common one is, is something called sore mouth in sheep and goats. And um, what often happens is that the new animal brings in a strain of the virus that the home animals haven't seen before. So the new animals are fine. The older animals, the animals that have been on the farm longer are the ones that, uh, for which this is a novel strain and they all break with it. And, and that's just one example. Mm. Um, any other comments about post-purchase management or should we, we move on to routine monitoring? Well, just um, post-purchase management. Now you're into the routine things of maintaining a good diet and, and um, uh, sanitation and vaccinating animals and parasite control, all those routine things we get into. And if you need help with that, certainly your veterinarian can help you design a program. Um, uh, I hope you know I didn't say um, dewormer. I said parasite control. We're trying to get away from just thinking of parasite control as, as using chemical dewormers. 
Uh, we, uh, as we talked about before, it's important to um, emphasize the non-chemical control measures so that we can preserve those dewormers for the animals that really need it and we delay the development of resistance. Right. Okay, and any other comments you want to make about assembling the herd, Susan? Really important for you to identify individuals, if, especially if you have a type of breed where they all look the same. You can't just say that one. You have to be able to identify them uh, so that, well, lots of reasons. Um, as part of your record-keeping system, you're going to write um, which animals you bred to which animals and uh, all the details about, about uh, how fast did they grow, what's their health. And you certainly be, have to be able to write down and identify which animals received any medications if they were sick. So you can keep track of, of medication withholding times and stay within the law. Uh, sometimes people just identify them by name, but realize that what if something happened to you? How would other people um, be able to um, recognize these animals? You really need a backup system besides just a name. Um, uh, ear tags or neck tags, just a variety of means are available. Right. And Susan, as a Canadian, I don't have a good grasp of, of just of the role that extension specialists like you uh, are able to play or do play. Like, I was just trying to get a sense of whether you encourage people in your region to call you or email you, or is that getting too much because there's just not the resources no, to you handle that, That's my job, so that would be great. Probably, though, the first place somebody would go locally would be their own local veterinarian. And that person would be very qualified to do this. I, I happen to be a veterinarian too, so I like to emphasize prevention when I talk about assembling a herd and, and uh, really like to emphasize the need to bring veterinarians in and start that relationship with a veterinarian that will be positive and educational for years to come. And I have to emphasize that owning animals is a, is a privilege. It's not a right that we have. And if we have animals, and we benefit from having them, we are obligated to provide for them, including um, adequate shelter and food and water and, and health care for all times. And, and it's disturbing to me when people get animals and they just take from them. They don't give back. And they have to realize we are obligated to be good and, and, and caring stewards of animals and because it's just the right thing to do. Right. The stakes are a lot higher when you're you're going to start your first cattle herd than when you just want to start growing carrots for the first time, I guess. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Susan Kerr, thanks a lot. I, I, I've appreciated both of our conversations now uh, that we've had on the Ruminant Podcast, and I hope we can have you back again soon. I hope so, too. I hope it's what you, you want and had in mind and think it's useful. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> okay, there's your episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. So a reminder that if you want to check out Herman Brun's mobile hoop house design, you can check it out at theruminant.ca. I'll have that up uh, at the same time this episode goes live. As well, I'm excited to tell you that uh, if all goes well, in the next week or maybe two, I'll have an interview with Tom Philpot, who is a food politics and food culture writer. He's written for a number of public publications, but primarily uh, lately for, for Mother Jones. He's also part of the Bite podcast. And he is on to talk about a recent article he wrote all about uh, the use of antibiotics in the livestock industry that was pretty interesting. So you can check that out at Mother Jones. Uh, or hopefully, uh, if all goes well, you'll hear Tom talk about it a little bit here on the show. So that'll be coming soon. And uh, 
Well, until next week, have a, have a good one. Reaches will live off chestnut spring water and peaches will owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.